This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director, and I'll be hosting this episode. Later, web editor Alex travels to Marito and Hackney to chat to head chef Mariona Levitataki about Cretan cuisine, including some unusual ways to prepare octopus. But first up, cookery writer Adam talks to Francisco Magoya, co-author of Modernist Bread, a masterclass over five volumes which promises to answer every question about bread, whether you're a home cook or a professional baker. Uh, hi guys, I'm here with Francisco Magoya. Hi, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you, very well. And uh, he is the co-author of uh, Modernist Bread, um, a sort of encyclopedic take on bread, like looking into every single aspect. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so it's a, a set of, of five volumes mm-hmm. on bread. Um, there's a, a sixth uh, book that comes with the the set, which is the kitchen manual. Basically, it's uh, the all of the recipes that are in the book, but in a more portable format, so you right. can take it in and out of your kitchen. So you don't, you don't have, have to bring to... the whole book. Right. <laughs> uh, by the way, it's it's an abs- it's a, a tome. I mean, it's it's got so much information. Yeah. In it's what two and a half thousand pages. It's two thousand exactly two thousand six hundred forty two pages. Wow! But who's counting? Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the funny thing is that it, the book itself weighs almost exactly what a bag of flour weighs. Oh, that's pretty so. cool. That's actually, yeah, that works yeah. pretty well. Um, but yeah, so it's, I mean, just to give you some numbers, it's, uh, yes, this, it's the 2,600 plus pages, it's five volumes, uh, 1,200 recipes. Um, originally it was 1,800 recipes, but we had to cut down cut, cut because down, right. it was going to be a six-volume book. And yeah, yeah. We had to draw the line somewhere. Um, the... The breakdown of the volumes is um, 
for example, volume one is, is uh, history of, mm-hmm. of bread. It's, it's a very vast subject. So it got like its own volume completely. Yeah. Um, it's, for me, it's 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 a fantastic way of 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 how we displayed it because it's a lot of photography. Of, right. Um, I mean, there's text, of course. Obviously, it's not just pretty pictures, but it's yeah, yeah. it's connected. The pictures are connected to text. Um, as you know, you know, photography is is it's it's only recently been around. So what we can sure. learn about bread mostly is from paintings. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, we went to the Louvre and a bunch of museums to take pictures of, of you know, bread and, and art. Yeah. Uh, so that's a substantial part of, of our first volume. Um, we were also able to, in that chapter, we, we replicated a bunch of recipes, historical Historical recipes, recipes yeah. Uh, how, how, how much do they differ from modern-day bread? I mean, you wouldn't, not that you wouldn't recognize it as bread, but it's not something that the modern palate would really... Um, <clears throat> appreciate so to is, speak and why is that is that the lack of like commercial yeast that they didn't have then or like the ancient grains that they used um, or there's a number of reasons uh, uh, mostly it's because bread had a different role in the past than it has right. now which was mostly uh it was probably your only the only thing you ate sustenance yeah, literally sustenance. yeah yeah um and so it had to have that it was very dense and very heavy yeah um and it was you know, it, it was something that you either spent most of your salary on, on, or you got paid in bread. Yeah, right. Um, and it had to last a long time, mm. so it, it wasn't something that you, you you had to consume like a baguette. You know, within eight hours before it starts to go stale. So I assume that because it had to last longer, the water content would then be a lot. Very like, low. It, like I'm thinking of like ships biscuits in like the exactly. navy, like dry, absolutely, like little things that you could you could barely break with your teeth right. but exactly. they could but they could sustain like a like you know months and months on a ship on exactly. a long journey and so you know, we don't need to do that now we don't mm-hmm. go on you know journeys that last that long that like you're going to need yeah. to have uh, bread and plus we have refrigeration a bunch of other things that yeah, make sure. our lives a lot easier these days so and a different role um mm-hmm. the you know even from roman times up until the renaissance it was it was it was a completely different animals so we replicated a lot of those recipes mm-hmm. because you know there's there's a lot of romanticizing bread in the past and how yeah. bread used to be better um, yeah. and I, I think it's important to you know have that conversation because it is you know a lot of people hold that to be like you know bread in the past was better than bread now yeah um, but what matters is understanding how bread used to be in the past um, and why it transformed into these white loaves of bread that you get in sure. a grocery store that is cheap and, and it has a long shelf life. And, and the short answer is that we, we kind of asked for that. Um, yeah. I'm not saying the people in this room, what I'm saying is that we, the people, yeah. wanted bread to be cheaper and more accessible. Uniform. And, it, and yeah. we wanted it to be really white and we wanted it to yeah. last a long time. So the industry reacted to that. And so that's why bread is now considered, it still is, it's considered this like very cheap thing, almost like it's it's... It should be very cheap and it should last a long time. And yeah. good bread really can't be that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it has, it requires, sure, the ingredients aren't expensive. No. Flour, water, salt, yeast. Um, what is expensive is the time it takes to make bread. Completely. Good bread. Good bread. Um, and labor. I mean, it, the people have to make this bread, and that 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 has its cost that, that needs to be factored into it. Yeah. So. I mean, I used to be a sourdough baker, and people would come into the bakery and... Mm-hmm almost couldn't believe the price. Uh-huh. I was like, that's 
you know, it's, it's not just like people just break it down to like, you know, you get the tap water for free. Sure. And then it's just flowers, you know, cheap. I can see it mm-hmm. on the shelf. It's really cheap. But it's, yeah, like you say, it's all those different things. Absolutely. Like the time, like if you're making sourdough, it's like a, at least a 48-hour process almost if you're Absolutely. doing like a cold proof and everything. So, yeah, people don't really see that. Right. And, in, and interestingly, you know, the there's outrage when, you know, in the USA, uh, you know, a fast food hamburger is a dollar. Yeah. Right. There's outrage by foodies, right? So mm-hmm. how can it cost a dollar? Um, you know, things have to happen for that hamburger to cost a dollar. But without with bread, we don't even bat an eyelash. It's like yeah. it should be that cheap. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, we need to really think a little bit more about yeah. that. Yeah, sure. So I wanted to ask you while I've got you um, about gluten. There's like a big backlash, like pretty much in America, definitely in, in England, yes. about people being intolerant or, you know, all these sort of things. And I just wanted to find out, as you know, scientifically yes. a lot about it. Yes. Is it bad for you? Are, are people like naturally going to be mm-hmm. um, intolerant of it? Like, is it, it seems to be a modern thing that... Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's part of the conversation for sure. I mean, it's it, some people, you know, you say gluten and they want to run out the door and, yeah. you know, yeah, into yeah. the street, you know. <laughs> um, but it's... It, it, we we need to understand what gluten is, and and you know, unfortunately, a lot of people that you would ask, you know, do you know what gluten is? They might not know what it is, mm-hmm. but they just know that because they've read it in a few magazines that it's bad for them. Yeah. Um, it, there's. I'm going to give you the short answer. The short answer is that there is no unless you're celiac, which right. is a real With disease, a, which is like a, a, an allergy almost. Yeah. To I the, mean, you eat. It's nobody actually. Is it not? Nobody's really. Nobody's died from celiac disease, right. but it really can make you very sick. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and and gluten intolerance, there is there's no scientific proof that there's actual intolerance right. to gluten. Uh, there are other parts of the bread that people have um, negative reactions to, and it's not necessarily the gluten. Because right. there are other proteins in bread, of course, yeah, yeah, that people can have a sensitivity towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a lot of uh, uh, tests that were made with people who claim that they had gluten sensitivity, there were a lot of experiments that were done with, you know, different amounts of gluten that were given to them unbeknownst to them. Sure. Uh, they even spiked some of their foods with actual gluten because it can, you know, actually yeah, it comes yeah. in a powder form. Um, and when they didn't know there was gluten in there, they had no reactions. So, right. you know, some of it might be in your head. Yeah. Um, but it can also be other parts of the bread that you might have a, a sensitivity to. So... Um, and it's, it's, it's not to say, you know, it's, it's, you're imagining things, but what we have to really be clear about is that it's not the gluten in and of itself. Bread is not the enemy. Right. Um, it, the enemy is, is misinformation and, mm. and it's, it's the media just giving people wrong information or information that just suits them. Um, or even the people or the industries that make, you know, gluten-free breads or make gluten-free products. I mean, you buy about... My daughter, a bag of of this candies that called Swedish fish. Mm-hmm. It's like a a, a a jelly candy, right. and it says gluten free. I mean, of it, course, it, it I know be. there's, there's, there's no be. gluten. <laughs> yeah, in. yeah. I've seen bottles of water that say gluten free. Like, wow. I mean, why are we doing this? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's just getting that information out is not as sexy as saying, you know, gluten is bad for you, stay away from it. Yeah, right. It's, you can't explain it in the, in so few so words. You can't be succinct with it. It's kind of like, yeah. It's like, okay, let's sit down and talk about why, you know. Yeah. The, so, um, so that's, you know, it, it's, people are educating themselves a little bit more. And, and we did a, a bunch of um, research. This was very simple, just looking up on Google Trends on, you know, specific word combinations. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, Gluten intolerance, uh, the first hit on Google was in 2003. 
Wow. Um, and then it started to increase every year proportionally. It was like incrementally every year mm-hmm. it would go up. It peaked in 2013, and right. then it has started to go down. Right. Okay, that's interesting. Right. So what that tells us is that people are either over it or they're uh, more informed about it. Or, yeah. you know, it could also be that people are starting to have more of an appreciation for artisan bread, which I, I think is, is happening. That is a thing that is See, that's See, that's basically what I was going to come on to is that I've read a bit about, like, through sourdough and mm-hmm. fully fermenting the grain, it sort of makes it people less intolerant of it i don't know whether that's um, the right phrase, there but. there is there isn't like hard science to prove that right. but in certain uh tests that have been done some people seem to feel better mm-hmm. uh, when they eat these types of breads yeah uh, but it could also be for other reasons is because you know a baker that utilizes these sorts of fermentation systems probably uses a you know a different kind of flour they probably have like different methods that actually you're your digestive system can agree more with right. versus something that is made in, you know, in a factory environment. Right. So, um, so I mean, in, you know, without a doubt, if you have, you know, if you look at the ingredients in, in a loaf of bread that is made, you know, in a, in a factory, there's 25 different things in it. There's a chance you might be allergic to one of those things. Yeah, of course. So, but if there's only four ingredients, there's less of a chance that you could be allergic yeah, to something there. Absolutely. Um, I also wanted to ask you about in Britain at the moment, there's kind of a bit of condescension to yeasted bread, like commercially yeasted yes. bread, as opposed to sourdough. It's kind of like, you know, oh, I can't <laughs> believe that you're putting that into your body. I wanted yes. to know whether it's like actually <laughs> bad for you or, you know, in any way worse or negative or like not as beautiful a product just uh-huh. because it's like used uh, like isolated commercial yeast as right. opposed to oh yeah the wild local yeast that come from the flour in my hands and the water and you know <laughs> right. all that sort of thing uh, i'm only laughing because it is it, there does seem to be this you know uh you know talking down from this high moral ground you know whoever uses sourdough starters and Absolutely. those who don't yeah it's like the chosen ones are the ones that are using white like the, yeah, the sourdough yeah. starter and everybody else who is like cheating using commercial yeast. Yeah. So, um, the short, long story short is that there's many kinds of breads in the world, and sourdough just happens to be one kind of bread. Absolutely. Um, and if you just lock yourself into that, you know, utilizing wild start wild yeast starters for mm-hmm. bread, well, you're limiting yourself to Absolutely. this enormous world of wonderful breads that exist. A lot of them utilize commercial yeast. Commercial yeast is not bad for you. Let me uh. let me just give you like a quick explanation why. Uh, commercial yeast is the same strand of yeast that exists in a sourdough starter. It's just more concentrated. Yeah, yeah. It's Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That's that's the strand of yeast that ferments bread. Just what you get in the commercial form, whether powdered or fresh, mm-hmm. it's the same yeast. Just it's a little stronger. It's yeah. a little you know beefier, and it can mm-hmm. do the work a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. It's a different flavor. It is a different animal, but it's the same type of yeast. It's the same. Yeah. So it's like saying. Uh, you know, the difference between a tiny, you know, a small dog and a big dog. Mm-hmm. They're, they're both dogs. One just happens to be bigger and stronger than the other one, but they're both dogs. So if you inoculated some flour and water with a tiny little bit of commercial yeast mm-hmm. and you left it to ferment slowly, mm-hmm. it would react the same way? You'd get the same, sour. Get the same acids like, like for the it sour? It would eventually dough. sour. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the techniques that we recommend for there's... When people are maintaining their sourdough, sometimes they don't know what's happening where it's just like it looks like it's you know, a little bit sad. It doesn't look like it's fermenting. It doesn't mm-hmm. look like it's moving. And so uh, literally adding a little bit, it's like adding vitamins to something, right. right? Adding like a little tiny bit of commercial yeast helps establish a colony of, of Saccharomyces in right. there. Um, but the most important thing to realize is that if you, there's other ways of, of, of bringing your, your starter back, um, 
if you didn't want to use commercial yeast, for example, it's just make sure you feed it at the same time every day. Yeah. It's like a pet. It'll it'll get used to a feeding cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, keep it at, you know, a more or less the same temperature. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to go through all of these dramatic temperature changes. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes adding even a little bit of, if you're using, you know, bread flour, um, adding a little bit of rye flour really adds a lot of nutrients for the yeast, right. and they love that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it just, it, like, it seems to come back to life a lot faster mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. that. So... Um, but like I said, even using like a, a pinch, like just a pinch granules of commercial yeast is going to help your, your starter. Um, what do you, um, did you uh, learn anything about like fruit based starters? You know, I've seen a lot of people like yes. raisins and mm-hmm. grapes and that sort of like dried fruit, whatever, right. into their starter. Right. What sort of impact does or does um, have? Well, it, it, so it's what that creates is something that's called a, um, uh, let me put it this way. The yeast that lives in wheat flour mm-hmm. is not the same yeast that lives on the top of raisins. Right. Uh, it's different strands of yeast. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they live in those separate places is because those yeasts have been specialized to eat the sugars in those things. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't live there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you get when you add fruit water to your starter is, is something that's called a false positive. Um, basically, what it does is it, it creates this environment where there's all of these sugars for the yeast to eat, but unless you feed it with that same fruit water every day, you're basically adding a different, a different species of yeast into your starter. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let's put it this way. If you, if you were to start from scratch, the technique is to inoculate, meaning mix water and raisins mm-hmm. and let them sit for about five days. And yeah. what this is going to do is it's going to create a, a, an environment of yeast in that water mm-hmm. that you then mix with flour and you wait another five days and you're going to have this, like your starter will have, your Levan or, or, or sourdough starter will have uh, come to life. The truth is that if you just mix water and flour, you're going to have the same result, Yeah. period. Uh, and it'll take a lot less time because you don't have to inoculate raisins. So just mix water and flour and you're good. I mean, that's really all you need. Yeah. Um, don't, because then, you know, once you inoculate the raisins, you know, a lot of people may use the raisins, but some people just throw it away. Yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah. it's a bit wasteful and it's a bit of a waste of your time. You don't, you don't yeah. really need to do that. Yeah. So it's actually, it takes less time to inoculate flour as opposed to... Yes. Absolutely. Because I think the, the assumption is that because of the sugar in the raisins, they're like, wow, I'm literally giving these, like, right. my, this, this yeast, like, supercharged food. Right. But, um, and, but, so that's the thing. It's like, unless you do that every day, and who's going to have raisin water to feed every day? I mean, that's going to become costly, you know? Mm-hmm. Bread is, is an economical thing that you just literally need water and flour to do. Mm-hmm. So. And during the research for this uh, project, was it, like, was it, I, I, like, for me... I always think of it being like quite confusing having so many experiments over mm-hmm. different days. Was it like, did you have like a massive spreadsheet to like basically just yes. keep track of everything mm-hmm. where it was and like yes. must have been quite an undertaking really? It, no, it was, it was massive because I mean, we have a food scientist on our staff yeah. um, and she has an assistant as well. Um, and we did perform 1,500 experiments in a period of three years, which is incredible. Yeah, incredible. Um, but yes, I mean, basically we had to keep track of what the experiment was. Some of the experiments only took one day. Some of them may have taken like up to eight weeks or three months, like when we were testing, mm-hmm. you know, frozen dough, how long can it stay frozen? Sure. And still. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was very complex in that regard because in a period of three years, you have 1,500 experiments. That's 500 experiments a year. Yeah. And we're not working 365 days a year. We take, you know, we have weekends in mm-hmm. there, so... Mm-hmm. We did have to really have a very organized system to perform all of these yeah. experiments. Yeah, so it was, it was very much a, a, like a, well, I know that modern cuisine operates that way. It's like a purely mm-hmm. scientific, mm-hmm. like you have 
uh, you know, it's really rigid in the way that it's scientifically tested yes. almost. Yeah. Well, we had to because if we're going to tell somebody, look, it turns out that, you know, whole grains aren't really that much healthier for you than, than, not, than white bread, then we need to show you why that is. Yeah, it's not, we're not just going to say that and, and walk away. Yeah. You know? So, or, uh, you know, the age of your starter doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. Why doesn't it matter? Well, because X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's things like that, that because bread has so many traditions attached to it, so many myths attached to it, because it's been part of mankind's history since yeah. mankind has been mankind, yeah, yeah. a lot of things are done and we don't maybe know why we do them. It's just because they've been done the same way forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just perpetuate those methods and we pass that information on as true. Um, and that's just part of human folly. It is what it is, you yeah. know. But, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of that stuff needed to be clarified because there is a lot of misinformation about why things happen, how they happen, and there are better ways of doing things that's complicated. Sure. And if you could have one loaf forever, just one, what uh-huh. would it be? Or if, like, you know, your, what's your go-to? What's your, what's your favorite bread to eat? Well, it depends on what it's for. But right. um, there, there's, can I say two? <laughs> you can definitely say two. Okay. Uh, our, our master sourdough recipe is one of my favorite breads. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's incredibly versatile for just eating as is or for making sandwiches. It, it sure. also holds like three, four, or five days. Um, but there's another one that is our chocolate cherry sourdough. Wow. Which is a fantastic bread. It has an identity crisis because it's, it is sour, but it's also sweet and it's also tart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has that, you know, that lactic flavor from the, from the sourdough starter and just like a bunch of chocolate and, and, and cherries. And so it's, it's just on its own, it's delicious, but also toasted. Yeah. I imagine toasted. Amazing. Be, yeah, it's an yeah. amazing bread. So. Yeah. And like, is it, so those are the, I guess those are the two recipes in the book that you'd be like most proud of. Yes. They seem like. And on our website, the, we have the recipe for the chocolate cherry sourdough. It's, oh. it's readily available for anybody who wants to do it. it. It was also in the New York Times recently. So if they just do a search in the New York Times for chocolate cherry sourdough modern cuisine, they can have the recipe. It's, it's there. Well, so. I know what I'm doing this weekend. Great. Um, <laughs> on that note, um, thank you so much for speaking to me. I feel it was like great. I probably speak to you all day. Yeah. Thank you so much. I hear you. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Hello, it's Alex here, and I'm at Marito Hackney Road with head chef Mariana Livaditaki. That Good right? morning, that's right, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this Marito, I don't know if um, our listeners have been to Morrow on Exmouth Market or the Marito there, but this Marito has a little Cretan twist, um, and that's because Mariana is from Crete, aren't you? Yes. And um, Mariana grew up um, in Crete as the daughter of a fisherman, so has been surrounded by the like, freshest produce from an early age, and we're going to chat about... Um, a bit about her childhood, Cretan food, and the island in general. Um, so, Mariana, growing up in Crete as a fisherman's daughter, you must have some great stories. Do you have any that you can share with us? <laughs> I do have loads, yeah. I mean, being the daughter of a fisherman in Crete, um, as, you know, this is, this is his profession and still is to this day, you know, is, is quite a unique experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything you do from a very young age is... is has to do with fish so whether it's preparing bait um whether it's helping dad clean fish whether it's helping dad taking you know materials to his boat trying not to fall off into the (laughs) harbor you know all of these things it's it's just um my life up to the age of about 15 was just to do with fish and our seafood restaurant and 
all of that that came and with I, it. I know you've got a great story about an octopus and a washing line. Yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. you elaborate? <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, it's, yeah, that was quite a funny one for years. Um, so we had this massive washing line on our balcony and we kind of, there was an invisible separating line where, you know, half of it was used for our clothes because, mm -hmm. you know, there were four of us in the family. My sister had already um, left the house. So, you know, lots of washing. And yeah. as you can imagine, you know, there's like... Um, so every day we would hang about 35 octopus on oh, wow. the one 35. part. I thought it was just one octopus. No, no because we had a seafood restaurant. And, wow, um, okay. I mean, the best kind of meze to have is an octopus that had, has been sun-dried. Right. And then you put it on the charcoal grill, not for very long, and then you have that, you know, on a lovely summer's evening with a glass of cold ouzo, you know, and people go mad, you know, for that. Um, so, yeah, 30, 35, yeah, so depending. you go past the Lever de Taki house and you see 35 octopuses hanging from the washing line. I can imagine that's yeah, quite a Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite a <laughs> And then next door to the octopus, like lovely smelling, you know, fabric conditioned clothes, you know. So it was like, I'm yeah, sure was, your mum loved that. Yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> Especially when you got smelling. the lines mixed up. Yes, yeah. yeah. I can imagine that caused quite a lot of confusion. Um, so how has Crete's like history influenced its food like has it been you know have you, I think there's a Turkish a bit of a Turkish influence isn't there yeah there's definitely I mean the the Ottomans were there for for a few hundred years really before them there were the Venetians you know everyone you know that has been there for such a long time um in in a place obviously influences mm -hmm. and is influenced you yeah. know so it's kind of a reciprocal um relationship that has developed over the, the, the years and the centuries. Um, I think the most important thing and what people notice around the world is the fact that, you know, um, Cretan food is super simple and has been studied a lot by scientists and, and, you know, people who are interested in food because the levels, you know, of health among okay. Cretan people are quite I can imagine it's good. really... Um, you know, about the really fresh produce? It's very much about the fresh produce. It's about, you know, first of all, you know, you land, you know, to, you land on the island and what you see is just olive trees, you know, oh, and that's wow. the A and the Z, you know, really in the diet, you know. Um, I read the most funny um, uh, article the other day which said that the average person, you know, they spoke about the United States and Germany and they kind of said, oh, the average consumption of olive oil is about half a litre per year, you know, in those countries. And then they go, the average person <laughs> consumption, the average amount of olive oil a person in Crete would consume annually is 25 litres. Oh, you know? my gosh, so, so 50 times more. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah you know, you do, you do have a lot. So it's, it's a base. It's a really, really solid base in the Cretan diet. And then you um, have, of course, there's fish and, of course, there's meat, but vegetables and pulses okay. are super, super important, you know. So there's always salads on the table. You may have, you know, your, uh, the full meal of a day might be, you know, slow-cooked beans or a lentil soup. Mm -hmm. There doesn't need to be. There is no need for fish or meat on a daily basis. And I think that's what's wonderful, you know, that, that it's not that they consciously um, 
become kind of vegetarian. Or flexitarian, you know. Yeah, you know, it's not like that. It just happens naturally, and it has happened throughout the years because the island has amazing produce Mm -hmm. around, whether it's cultivated, you know, or whether it's wild. So what are the most iconic Cretan dishes? Like, do you have... Is it served like a metze, or is it more like big hearty dishes and salads? Like, I think the most important... uh, Thing we do in Crete, which is wonderful, and I try and I pl- apply this here in Morito, mm-hmm. is is the the kind of idea of sharing. You know, um, eating is not you know an act that you do just because it's a biological necessity. You no, know, it definitely has, not. You <laughs> know, it has it gives you so many pleasures, and you know, especially in in cultures where eating at the kitchen table and sharing food with other people it's a place of the kind of social meeting place you know this is where everything gets talked about whether it's gossip or whether it's serious family issues or whether it's decisions to be made or whether it's laughing or fighting whatever it is you know it's sitting around a table and 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 sharing food while discussing all these things you know is 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 crucial so you don't go somewhere and have a main course and okay. a starter like right. you would have yeah. sharing you know here um, so you what, share everything what what are the the most you know the the most iconic dishes and the sharing like what would you have on a typical metse well I know it's not called metse but well i think so. the magic about crete is that within a very small period of time you can go from the sea to the mountains okay. from the mountains to the sea you know so yeah. it's it's a choice so if you're around the sea side and you're sitting on a nice small taverna by the beach then Sounds you great. will I'd share like fish right yeah. <laughs> me too actually what um, kind, what's the most popular fish there the... well you get lots of fish you get you know bream type fish and then you get amazing other fish like scorpion fish which are really dangerous to catch and you need to know how to handle them but they make the best soups ah um you get different types of groupers you know how do you serve that would you just grill it or well the sun dry depending on the fish so you would either charcoal grill it which i try and do here keep it really simple so you know you just charcoal grill fresh fish and just put olive oil and lemon if it's a a soup fish so if it's got lots of gelatine and it's Mm -hmm. rich then you would make a sea a a fisherman's soup you know we usually call it cacavia in Crete. and what kind of flavors are in there what herbs um there's hardly anything in there there's just fish potato olive oil maybe a little bit of tomato um, because what you do is you know your fish is so incredible you don't really want to interfere okay so that's what I learned yeah (laughs) so um what are the most common used ingredients that you use I know you've got um thyme honey on your menu and I'm actually having some now like what um what are the other ingredients that you use a lot apart from olive oil of course well I try and I try and bring as much as I can um, from Crete. I think that, you know, at the moment, I don't, I, I bring produce from the rest of Greece as well because obviously Greece has lots to offer, you mm-hmm. know. Um, 
but from Crete we bring fresh cheeses. So we okay, bring what kind of cheese? Two types of cheeses. One is called Anthotiros, which is a very, very milky, fresh sheep's milk cheese. So it's not really matured. It's 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 super gentle. Okay. Um, you can have it savoury and you can have it sweet. So you can char it and put some thyme honey as yeah, you're having now over it. Or you can have it with a broad bean and asparagus salad, you know. Okay. Um, so it depends what you fancy. And then we bring Mizithra, which is usually, again, sheep's milk. Um, it's a little bit more mature, a bit more sour, and sometimes you can get it from goat's milk. Okay. Um, which I prefer personally. It's got a little bit more of a tang to it. And that's what you use to make them the Cretan dacos, which most people who have been to Crete um, know the Cretan dacos, which is these barley rusks, really hard kind of barley rusks that, uh, you know, date um, back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a way of making a style of bread that keeps forever, you know. So that's how you make that and then... last like throughout the winter it does yeah i mean that's not its purpose now it's used now because people love it yeah you know and it's delicious so what's the texture like then it's really hard so you you kind of make a loaf Mm -hmm. of bread and then you slice it and dry it's almost like a rye kind of texture it's like a rye it's kind of like a rusk it's like Mm that you find it in many different cultures but you know it started originally because it was a way for people to be able to eat bread and have things to eat, you know, without um, having to preserve it. And then um, breakfast, so it's breakfast time now, and we're, we're going to try a bugatza. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Because I'm really intrigued by this. Well, I love bugatza. I was brought up in Hangan very often, you know, in the morning when we used to go with mum into town to, to, you know, do shopping for the restaurant. She'd always say, oh, let's go and have a little bugatza, you know, and I'd be really excited about that. And do you that. find that, every, is it like a street food in Crete or is it more There's like not, a taverna style It's dish? So it's not a street Street food and it's not a taverna, oh, but okay. there's only specific places in Hanga that you would go and have a burrata. Okay. So we have um, a place uh, which is a family. It's been going on for hundreds of years called Iordanis. Iordanis. Iordanis, okay. and it's called Burrata of Iordanis. That's the family name. And um, they do burrata in Hanga slightly, well, not slightly, quite differently to the rest of Greece, where, you know, it's basically crispy filo pastry and inside it has a cheesy mixture. In the north of Greece, you find it quite sweet. So it's almost like a custard base um, filling, whereas in Crete, you get more of a cheesy, savoury pastry. And then you have it hot, full of, like, topped up with lots of caster sugar mm. and cinnamon yeah. um, and it's absolutely delicious but you go in the place you know the mum that his mum is there she's about 100 years old you know <laughs> she's sitting there she still cuts it still same movements you know hello hello you hardly get a smile you order your burrata she weighs it you pay it she gives you a glass of water and then she's happy to see you go for the next ones to come in you know and it's, yeah. it's like a ritual you <laughs> okay. know but but here it's a bit more um, of a leisurely affair, isn't it? So you, you have bagatza on your breakfast menu at the weekend, we don't do. you? We and do. And also having a mountain tea. Can you tell us a bit more about the mountain tea? Yeah. So the, the mountain tea in Crete is um, malotira. And we add a few more other kind of wild 
herbs um, like majurana and dictamo. Um, all these herbs are, are, you know, meant to have really good um, therapeutic properties. Yeah, and you very, can actually taste it. It tastes like it tastes healthy. Like it's quite floral and. <laughs> but in a nice way. It's not like potpourri or anything, but yeah, it's um, really fragrant. I mean, I love it. I love the aromas. I love preparing it here. The whole restaurant kind of mm. gets this lovely aroma that like takes... It's almost like a thyme smell, we were saying. It is, it's, yeah. It isn't thyme, is it? It's no. not thyme, no, but you get that kind of um, dry herb mm. aroma coming through something between thyme and oregano, you know. So we serve it here with Cretan um, thyme honey. And uh, everyone seems to love it. Yeah, well, I do. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for. But um, okay. I think we're going to try a bagatza, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Um, but thanks for letting us come in. And, yeah, if anyone wants to try some of these amazing dishes and ingredients, then pop along to Marito Hackney Road and uh, come and say hello to the guys. Yeah. Thanks well. a lot. Thank you. That was this week's Olive Magazine podcast. If you liked this episode or you have any suggestions, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our brand new March issue now or go and download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat.